Hello, listeners, and welcome to this week's episode of Film is Lit, the podcast where we take a piece of literature and compare it to its film or television adaptation. This is our first television adaptation. That's right. We knew that would be applicable at some point, so we kept throwing it in there. (laughs) Yeah. Two seasons in and the last episode of season two, we're finally tackling a TV show. Yeah. We realized after we started this podcast, oh, TV shows take longer to watch. So so that's why it's taken us so long to get around to a TV show, but we just had to watch this show after reading the book. The book in question is... Stephen King's 112263. And I guess we should introduce ourselves if this is your first time. My name is Danny. I'm the film expert. He, him. I'm Laura. She, her. The literature expert. Amen to that. Can you believe it? <laughs> Two seasons. I know. We're wrapping up our second series of 10 books and it feels good. Episode 20. Almost legal. Not yet. <laughs> Take away that booze. (laughs) Speaking of first, this is the first episode ever that I'm drinking a beer during the recording. Ooh, what what do you got on tap today? Uh, It's not my favorite, but it's one of my favorites. It's Alaskan Amber Ale. And Alaskan is the uh, brand, not the type. Right. Yeah, Alaskan. Yeah, it's really good. Is it from Alaska? Yeah, it's, it's brewed in Juneau. It's really good. My dad and I really like Amber Ales. Me too. Uh, I'm a fan. Yes, but my favorite is from Vermont. It's called Long Trail. Mm, And it's only brewed in Vermont, and they do not ship it outside of the East Coast. Coast. Seems like so. I can't buy it in California, but I drink it a lot when we go back. Anyone listening in the Northeast, (laughs) buy us some Long Trail. Spend the, I don't know, 90 bucks to ship it across country. We need it. And then don't charge us for it. Just gift it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Get, obviously, why would you Why would you think of it? Yeah, no. It's it's our gift from you. Um, we're picking out our gift already for Christmas. Uh, and speaking of firsts, I'm flying solo without notes. I took lots and lots of notes as I read this 1,080. 80 page novel it's a it's a thick girl it's a brick (laughs) yeah but um and we're recording at my parents house and i thought i grabbed my notes and i didn't hey here's (laughs) here's usually what happens with me though i take all these notes i copy and paste excerpt from other reviews i i do all this research but i find myself only looking at them occasionally yeah that's what usually happens right taking notes is more for retaining the information as you're reading it Whereas I rarely actually look at my notes during this pod, except for a couple of fun facts here and there. You're right. I I feel like sometimes I use my notes just to make sure I don't go overboard talking too much about my opinions rather than focusing on my analysis of a piece of work. But we're going to fly solo today. We're going to see how it works. And we're also playing it by ear to figure out if this will be a one or two part episode. Yeah. No, this is going to be a long episode because as we mentioned, the book is extremely long and the show is eight hour long episodes so we have a lot of content but yeah we're just going to dive into it so basically we love the book just absolutely adore it now we have different views on Stephen King as an author and his past work but we both can agree that this book of his what what a piece of art what 60th book 
Great. See, you remembered that and you didn't need your notes. Right. Well, and I I say that with the caveat that I think a lot of books have been published under his name and sort of co-written with his son, but this is, yeah, like his 60th book. And he's still (laughs) got it. But this is... In, this is something else. Yeah. yeah. This is something special. And it's not just for someone who's interested in JFK or, or the conspiracies mm-hmm. around his assassination. Or even if you're a fan of time travel or not, it, it doesn't really matter. This is just a good story. Even if you're a fan of Stephen King's body of work, this is a very different kind of Stephen King novel. And it's, yeah, it's a good amalgamation of all his different tones and stories throughout the years because there are some sci-fi elements. There are some horror elements, but more of the horror comes from the psychological aspect of the mission or, you know, the dangers at play or the past pushing back, as we'll get into. It's very scary, not in, you know, the ghouls and gore type of way, but in, in a very realistic, intense way. Yeah, it's a really interesting smoothie. Number one, because it's based on something in history. You know what you're building toward. That pretty much every American knows about, if not everyone in the world. But it's especially personal to Americans because it's the, the president, right? Right, so of course the title refers to the day that President Kennedy was assassinated. Mm -hmm. So it's gripping because we know what the story is building toward. Mm -hmm. And obviously in a lot of Stephen King novels, you're throwing a lot of curveballs. And I think something else that he's really playing on when he talks about how he approached the research for this novel. And he talked about why conspiracies are so deeply embedded in the American psyche. And he comes to realize that it's because people don't want to believe that something so random as Lee Harvey Oswald being in the right place at the right time had such an effect on the world. And so I think Stephen King was really exploring why people don't want to believe that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Why people want to believe that he was part of a bigger story. Because for the most part, humans want to believe that there are patterns in life and in the universe when really Lee Harvey Oswald was just in the right place at the right time. Right, and he was killed before he ever went to trial, so we've never found out his motive. And ostensibly, there really was none other than like maybe Oswald wanted to be a person recognized in history, but that's just a theory that he was seeking attention. Right, he was a narcissist. Right, and it's like that's all signs point to that being the case, but the thing is it will never know, thanks to Jack Ruby. Do you want to get into Journeys, or do you have a long history with this novel? It only came out in 2011, so... Right, well, I guess I should get into my history with Stephen King before I approach this novel. So, I mean, growing up, you know Stephen King. I mean, mm-hmm. arguably the most famous author. Contemporary uh, author, for right. sure. And I knew about The Shining, um, I, I knew about Misery, the, the movies. Mm-hmm. I had never read any of the books. And the first... Stephen King book I tried to tackle was in high school. He just released Under the Dome in 2009, I believe, which is another 1,000-page-plus book. I mean, what Stephen King novel isn't? Right. (laughs) And I tried to read that, and that's one of those novels where it's less about a story and it's more about a people 
in a in just a singular place in a town under this dome and i couldn't really engage with it because there was no story and i didn't really engage with the characters so i stopped reading around 300 pages in and i was i didn't read a lot of books in high school anyway mm. so that was my very first take with stephen king and i'm like i don't get the hype on this guy like he writes these insanely long books what's it about and then later on in college I read Misery mm -hmm. because in my class film and lit. <laughs> Which is what I keep wanting to call this podcast. Right. We we cover that movie and so I had to read that for class. Mm. Fell in love with a book and I had always loved the movie. I'd watched that in high school. So I'm like, okay, Stephen King, you're winning me back a little bit. And mm. then last year I read Pet Cemetery, which... Talk I about, haven't read that, oh, actually. Oh, that is dark. I mean, if you're a fan of King, you've probably read it already. But if not, pick that up. It is, it's a dark, sinister novel. It's not, not light reading. Mm -hmm. It will certainly put you in a mood for a long time because basically it deals with the death of a child. That's kind mm -hmm. of the whole point of the book. But that, that was intense for me. And then finally, I knew that the show was coming out in 2016, but I didn't have Hulu back then. And Hulu, <laughs> Hulu wasn't this fantastic streaming giant like it is now, four mm -hmm. years later. I mean, Hulu was still big four years ago, but it's nothing like now where, honestly, I, I'm team Hulu. I, I'm not, we're not <gasps> sponsored by Hulu or anything like that, but I think Hulu has all the shows that we love. It has so many stuff, more than Netflix, in my opinion, a ton of movies. I'm a big fan of Hulu, but mm -hmm. okay. Anyway, I didn't watch the show when it came out in 2016. But then we started listening to this podcast a couple years ago by our favorite comedians, Rory Scovel and Daniel Van Kirk, called Pen Pals. Shout out to Pen Pals. Right. But their favorite book is 11 63 and they talk about it all the time. So we're like, once we started this podcast, we're like, okay, okay we already. definitely <laughs> need to read this. And we hadn't gotten around to it because it is such a gargantuan task. I mean, mm -hmm. 1,080 pages, that is... That has nothing to right. snuff at. What we're trying to say is that this is a long, <laughs> long book. I mean, if you, in my opinion, once you break that 800 page mark, you're in like a, a huge time investment mm. for that book. A huge time investment if you mean like reading it in a week. Yeah, <laughs> well, well, that's the thing. So we, <laughs> we thought the book would, would take us a long time. Right. But we both finished it within a week, which... Well, and not only us. Sorry, I interrupted you, but finish your thought. Well, I, I was about to say what you're about to say was we sent it to our parents. Right. My dad, your dad, and your mom. Yeah. Well, I sent it to my dad, and he read it in like four days. Yeah. And he's a speed reader, but even then, that was like super quick for the length of this book. And then I gave it to my mom, and my mom finished it in four days, too. And it is just... I mean, it's one of those books where it's so good that it's so good that you'll you'll want you'll want to keep reading. It, this yeah. is the type of book you stay up late at night oh. to keep reading or keep listening to it if you're listening to it on audiobook. Right. Yeah, it's it's a 32 hour audiobook, so <laughs> very. That's all. That, also a huge time investment. Yeah, huge. Yeah. I mean, if you, that, that's why. To be honest, I mean, I'm not a huge reader like you are, but it's just, that's why I don't read a lot of long books because it's, it is just so much time. Mm -hmm. And even though we read it in a week, that's all we did for a whole week oh, yeah. was just read. Like yeah. it really takes that long. And but this is 
pre-quarantine. You you read it before quarantine. I, think I, I did. Yeah. I read and and listened. I did both during quarantine. Right. So this. So I read it in a week, which included my commute to work, mm-hmm. and then coming home and reading into the night because I couldn't put it down. So let me tell you, this That's book is worth it. How about your journey? Well, I'll try to keep it shorter than a saga. So I don't remember if I mentioned this during our Shining episode, but my first Stephen King novel that I read was The Shining, and it was in college because I had not really gotten into thrillers yet. And after I read The Shining, I became obsessed with Stephen King, and almost immediately I read Carrie, Cujo, and Misery, in pretty quick succession. To be fair, those are very short. I read Carrie in a single night because I couldn't put it down. And the reason that I actually purchased 112263 was because I rarely go into actual bookstores like Barnes and Noble, ones that aren't like secondhand bookshops, but I'd started reading a book. I don't remember what it was, but I had found the copy at a thrift store and I had found like three typos in the text. Hmm. And that's annoying to me. Yes. <laughs> so since I was in the middle of the novel, I went to Barnes and Noble specifically because I wanted to a new copy of the book so I wouldn't have to worry about all these typos everywhere. And of course, if I go into a bookstore, I can't just buy one book. So because I knew I love Stephen King and it had come out, this was probably in like 2013 or 14 or something. I saw this book on the shelf and I was like, oh, I'll get it. Like it was 10 bucks and I was like, I can't resist. So I bought it and then it sat on my shelf for four or five years. And I put this book at the end of season two of our podcast because I was like, all right, this is gonna take me 10 weeks to read, right? And I started the book, again, like we said before quarantine, I started reading this because I was like, there's no way that I'm gonna finish this and be able to watch a television series with eight episodes that are an hour each within, you know, a a few weeks. Like I I was like, I I need to get a head start on this. And literally one week later, I am obsessed with it. It's my favorite book. It's my favorite Stephen King novel that I've read so far. Yeah, we don't want to make it seem like we're these two like ultra fans gushing. It is a true fact that every single person who, who we've given this book to has read it in a week and been like, that was amazing. That was amazing. One of my, so, yeah. yeah. Right. How we're going to structure this podcast is, since we have very strong feelings about both the book <laughs> and the show, one <laughs> one very positive, one very negative, I, by default, you can you know how we feel by the show, we are going to spend the first half of this recording just talking about the book and why it's great, and then the second half of why that the show doesn't live up to the book in any way and how it actually detracts from King's story. Right, and we're again gonna try to stay objective. But bear with us. It it is difficult to stay objective when you love a property so much. But I think we can argue that, A, it's a bad adaptation for fans. And it's also just a poor show outside of the book. Right. If you're just watching it just to watch it. Right. And there's there's so much in the book to sink your teeth into that I think we can fill a full hour of content. So (laughs) that's why we think we're going to... The show just... It's just (laughs) the showrunner show a fundamental misunderstanding of what King was doing here, which is funny because Stephen King was a producer on the show, which makes me wonder how much 
authority and influence he had as a, a executive producer so not a full-on producer like he was funding mm-hmm. he was funding the show and he was contributing to the script a little bit but i just it, this is just so bizarre because he hates the shining for how different it is I was from just his bring book this up. so i'm like i'm like hey steve this show might as well not even be called 112263 right. it, it holds almost zero similarities between your book other than that the main character travels back in time to try to stop the JFK assassination that's where basically the similarities end right so it just boggles my mind that he was attached to this project in any way and that he hasn't I publicly disowned it and another thing that's so disappointing is that like right before we started watching the first episode Danny found this listicle of just television shows based on Stephen King novels or short stories that were ranked from best to worst. And there were literally like 40 examples on this listicle. And at number one was 112263. That listicle put it at number one out of like 36 or 40 television shows based on Stephen King content. And so it just boggles my mind that so many people could enjoy this piece of doo doo pee pee <laughs> sorry to get sorry to get <laughs> crass but that's how i feel <laughs> and it's also the show is highly rated on rotten tomatoes it has like an 88 percent from the critics and a 90 percent approval rating from audiences and again i know we sound a little biased since we're fans of the book and the show so different from the book but our goal here today is to try to explain why this is a a really right. a really poor show. Laura feels more strongly than I do. I was with the show for the first couple episodes where Laura pretty much went downhill immediately. Yeah. <laughs> but I I will fully admit to you right now, my love, that <laughs> you you were right. Is that the show was as bad as you're saying? I I just don't think it took a nosedive as quickly as you think it did. But yeah, let's let's get into the book because oh, because again we don't want this whole. Sh- whole episode to be us just shitting on the show. Yeah, I am really gonna try to rein myself in. So maybe we should just summarize the book yeah, go ahead. quickly because I don't know how many people are gonna do both, like read the book and watch the show. So the book opens with the main character, Jake Epping, who is a teacher in Maine. We get it, Stephen King, you're from Maine. <laughs> right? Christ Almighty! It. Every single story, say, like I get it. Maine, beautiful state, but I mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm done it. with we Maine. We get it with Maine. Anyway, so Jake Epping, high school teacher in Maine, and he is teaching an adult learning class after normal school hours for people who are yeah a GED class GED class yeah so Jake is an incredible teacher and he's an he seems to be sort of one of those classic pillars of the community in his own way like he really seems to connect with people in the town he's maybe a little bit of a loner but we see this in the relationship that he builds with this diner owner named Al. And so after the graduation ceremony, Jake, out of the goodness of his heart, takes one of his students to get a celebratory lunch at Al's diner. Harry Harry Dunning. Harry who, Dunning. Remember that name? He'll come back later. Right. Oh, and I should say, we should have said the full spoilers for both the yes. book and the show. Hopefully you've read the book by now, if you're listening <laughs> to this. If you haven't, 
read the book, this is the one and only time where I'll say, stop listening to this episode. Right. Don't return till you read Put the book. Put the time in. Yeah. You will not regret Again, it. Again, it'll take you a week. Okay, right. continue. So we're back to Jake and Harry. Now Jake has seen Al the day before. So when he arrives at the diner and Al looks 50 years older, maybe not 50, but like, yeah, like quite considerably terrible. Older. Yeah. Like he has like a beard. He's like lost weight. A ton of weight. He's yeah. like clearly something has happened. And Jake is really concerned because him and Al have become really close. So Al sort of puts him off and puts him off and he finally tells him, okay, like come to my house like after like nine o'clock or something. Like I'm gonna go take a nap. Like I'm really not feeling well. And so Jake comes back and Al has this very interesting story to tell Jake. <laughs> so Al has owned his diner for like 30 years or whatever. And one day after he was cleaning the diner, he found what they call the rabbit hole in the pantry closet of his diner. And he finds out that if he walks to the back of the pantry, there are stairs that you like can't see, but it's basically this time portal that transports him back to 1958. What's the Yeah, exactly? September 9th, 1958 at 11.58 a.m. There Every single Thank time. You. See, you I travel. would have had this in my notes, but they're not in front of me. So he time travels every single time to the same exact place at the same exact time. Yeah, and he explains the rules of this portal, there are like four right. simple rules, which is nice that the king establishes the universe, you know the rules, and then you never dwell into the mechanics of time travel and all that. It's just, there are these rules, right. now go at it. So the rules are, so every journey through the portal transports them to September 9th, 1958. Second rule, no matter how long someone stays in the past, so hours, days, weeks, years, when you return, only two minutes have elapsed. Now past events can be changed. However, if you use the portal again, so subsequent uses, oh. it it resets the timeline and nullifies all changes made mm -hmm. on your previous trip. And then the final big one is that the past is obdurate, which we'll talk about this mm -hmm. term obdurate keeps on showing up in the novel about a thousand times. Right. And which means, you know, the past is stubbornly pushing back at you, throwing obstacles in your way to prevent you from, from, to prevent it from being changed. So, and the resistance is proportional to the magnitude of the change you're trying to make. Right. And so that, that's it. That's, Al explains that. Yep. To Jake and. Because, and Al has understood this because again, he's owned the diner for some period of like 20 to 30 years. And so, and we find out this is sort of a, fun little thing, a detail that was a breadcrumb in the beginning because Al's burgers have always been like, you know, a dollar fifty. Mm -hmm. And people make fun of his burgers because they're like, oh, of course it's like cat meat or roadkill <laughs> that he's using in these burgers. But we find out that Al has actually been traveling back in time and buying beef in 1958. And yeah. so every time he brings the beef back, it's like he's not spending, you know, contemporary 2011 dollars on beef. He's going back and buying, you know, and and the, the sort of the sweet thing that's connected Jake and Al is that Jake hears all these rumors, but he doesn't believe them because he just knows the burgers are good. So yeah. he's like, they're cheap and they're good. And I like Al's company. So yeah. that's something that kind of is was the basis of their relationship. And it's sort of grown out of that mutual esteem for quality and also just being around people that you enjoy. It's honestly, it's akin to me with McDonald's uh, filet fish sandwiches. That can't be real.
whale fish. I'm sorry for four dollars, but honestly, they are so delicious. I know people make fun of me for eating them because they're like, "Ew, filet fish at McDonald's." I think they are delicious. I order them all the time. Uh, I hate how people make fun of me. I I, I hate how I get vilified for ordering fish fillets at McDonald's. Anyways, continue with the summary. So anyway, so Jake shows up at Al's place and he he basically finds out that Al has cancer and he's very close to dying. But Jake is sort of confused because he's like, I don't understand how your cancer could have advanced so quickly. Like Like, I saw you last night and you looked looked fine. fine. Right. So. Again, Al goes into this whole thing about how he can travel in time. And Jake's like, okay. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, that's not true. So he's like, okay, well meet me at the diner tomorrow morning. Like I have to take I have to take my meds. I have to go to sleep. I have to regain my energy, but meet me at the diner. So Jake meets him at the diner and sure enough, he gets transported back to 1958. And he comes back and Al goes through all of these rules. And then he sort of springs his ultimate mission on Jake, which is, listen, I believe that there are things called watershed moments in history. And these are things that had such a big impact on history that it changed the course of the world forever. And he believes that the assassination of President Kennedy is one of these watershed moments. And it put America and the rest of the world on this completely different path that he thinks he can change into a better path right? if, if he stops the assassination. Right, because Al's reasoning is that if you save JFK, then his brother, Robert Kennedy, probably wouldn't run for office. So his right. brother wouldn't be assassinated. Now, if you save both the brothers, then you might save Martin Luther King. And then if you, and then you can stop the race riots. And if you, you know, save the Kennedy brothers, maybe you stop the Vietnam War. But he's saying that, you know, you can stop all these horrible things from happening by just saving one guy. Right. So Jake is very hesitant to do this. And he honestly kind of still doesn't believe his eyes, so to speak. So he tells Al, listen, I have to think about this. I'm not sure that I want to take this on. And so he goes... And oh, it's not as simple as just going back in time and and shooting Oswald because they're not 100% sure that Oswald killed him. And and neither Jake or Al are comfortable with just killing a man in cold blood. Even if they're 98% sure that Oswald was working alone and he was the one who pulled the trigger, Al has the weight of murder mm-hmm. on his shoulders and he he knows exactly sort of the path that Oswald takes to get to that day to that place and he decides well if I can take out the element of doubt then I can feel a little bit better about just killing him you know because Al's also concerned he's like well you know Oswald had two daughters and he had a wife and he had a mother like he wants to make sure that he's not just killing someone who didn't do anything yeah. even though he was kind of a piece of shit like right. Oswald was a piece of shit even before he pulled the trigger. A commie. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So he puts all of this onto Jake and he's like, oh, also, by the way, I'm dying. So this is all up to you. (laughs) Right. And and when you travel back, you're going to have to wait five years before 62, right? Right. Because they're not just traveling. It's not like he's traveling to like a month before the assassination. He's traveling five years before. Right. So Jake says, just a second, I need to think about this. He comes back to Al's place the next day and he says... Here's what I'll do. I had a student who wrote a very traumatic paper about the day that his siblings and his mother were killed by his father. And he decides that maybe as a test, he's gonna go back 
and try to stop that from happening and then come back and see how that changed his current life. So I'm going to try to speed this up because I know we've got like a lot. Yeah. But he goes back and he ends up saving most of saving them. most of the family. Except for poor old Tugga who gets a <laughs> yeah. hammer to the head. <laughs> so the thing is, though, he kind of he goes back a couple times because he realizes, like Danny mentioned, the past is obdurate. So there are things that push back at him. So he goes back a couple of times to try to get things as right as he possibly can. And he eventually comes back and says, you know what? I'm on for this mission. I can do it. I'm I'm in to stop the Kennedy assassination. So maybe this is a good time to sort of like condense the summary really quickly. Cause that, that's a lot of setup, but I think it's really important. So basically Jake Eppin goes back to 1958. And the, the first time he goes back, like for the full mission al had just committed suicide because he was in too much pain right so yes al dies and and, and this is the catalyst right thanks for reminding me of that so he goes back he establishes himself because remember he reset the timeline when he went back to 2011 after saving harry's family so he has to do that again which fun fact by the way takes place in Derry, maine which is where it takes place and there's actually a fun little crossover if you've read that book or watched the movies but he basically does that again and then he starts making his way to texas because obviously this is where everything comes to a head he does his research and ends up in a little town called jody Texas, which is where just outside of Dallas, where he meets, where he gets a job as a high school teacher and really has this incredible time as a teacher. It's it's such a precious, like lovely. It's the middle of the book, and it could be its own book, but it's about three (sighs) hundred pages of just his time and Jody. Right, and 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 he's sort of driving between Jody and Dallas because he's researching Lee Harvey Oswald and still trying to like again confirm that he was the only person that was the involved in the assassination and all these things. So eventually, (laughs) so he strikes up a relationship with Sadie, the school librarian, and eventually Sadie finds out that uh, Jake is from the future, and then they eventually kind of run out of time, and they go to try to stop the Kennedy assassination. They go up to the book depository. They stop Oswald from assassinating Kennedy, but Sadie dies in the process, so shed a tear and and then yeah then jake goes to the future but realizes that it's this kind of post-apocalyptic landscape where Mm -hmm. when jake talks to the yellow card man who's the uh guardian of this portal he realizes that not not jfk surviving caused this destruction destruction but too many strings in the what is it in time like there's too much going he changed the past too many timelines yeah right? he changed the past so severely that it kind of reality broke in a way and caused this destru- destruction so jake goes back and resets everything and everything's the way it that it was, but then now back in 2011, he goes to Jody, Texas, where 80-year-old Sadie is receiving like mm-hmm. the Jody Town Award for Person of the Year. Mm-hmm. Sadie, obviously, since he reset everything, Sadie doesn't know who he is, but she can kind of say, like, don't I recognize you? Right. And Jake was like, in another life. Right. It's kind of this sweet little tender way to close the book. And man, what? Yeah. So that's what? literally just the summary. Yeah. That that was the whole the whole story. Now let's get into why 
It's so dang good. So my favorite yeah. scene, and this kind of encapsulates why I think Stephen King is such a talented writer in his good books. <laughs> Stephen King is good when his books are good, and when his <laughs> when he's not on too much cocaine. Because honestly, there are a lot of cocaine. Yeah. Oh, I also tried reading <laughs> it as well, and I know a lot of people love that book. I also couldn't get through that. I think I it's kind of it's a lot of nonsense in my opinion. But he was on. I think that was written during some of his heaviest cocaine years. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> so, controversial so. opinion, but I just, I couldn't get through it. I, it's just, that's even longer than this book, if you can imagine. But mm-hmm. my favorite scene, and it's something that I've never even considered before, was when Jake first travels back in time. So I, when, I when he's calling, he's calling yeah. bullshit on Al's, <laughs> Al claiming that there's a, a time portal in the back of his diner. He's like, right. of him experiencing the past for the first time. Now, what makes this section of the book so wonderful is that King reveals a lot of details about traveling back in time that I never even considered about mm-hmm. just traveling back to the past. Like, mm-hmm. I'm such a huge fan of time travel stories that I feel like an idiot for never thinking of some of the stuff that. Stephen King uh, brings to light. So mm. when Jake first steps into 1958, Lisbon, Maine, he comments on the, the harsh smell, like mm-hmm. kind of the sulfuric, rancid smell of it. I'm like, oh yeah, like everyone was smoking. And he comes out near a factory and it's like back back in the 50s, there weren't all these safety regulations about pollution and what you can pump into the air and Mm -hmm. and filters weren't as good in cars and that's such an interesting detail to be like yeah the past would smell but on the positive side of things he goes to a restaurant across the street and has a root beer and the root beer is some of the the sweetest richest drink he's ever had and he realized that just stuff tastes better back in the past because there weren't all these additives of course they use more fat in their food and more sugar in their drinks but it's just that's such a smart detail to say like oh stuff was stuff was more fulfilling in the past because mm-hmm. it was just it was natural and, and right there you were you were drinking like actual real authentic sugar root cane, beer yeah right. sugarcane right and of him just savoring this food and of of the detail of his body not being used to this pure food of it of the root beer kind of just sitting in his stomach I, I think was just such a smart detail and such a a a visceral way mm-hmm. to just transport you to the past. I mean, it, Stephen King is so great at world building that you genuinely feel there with him. I mean, that's kind of corny to say, but that's how good his writing is here. And then of him coming back to the future, back mm-hmm. to the future, and then of him kind of being sick from all the food that he consumed because he's just not, he had some pie too, and he's just in the crust. Like four slices of pie because he's so delighted that it's a quarter. Yeah, <laughs> and know? and the and the crust, you know, in the 50s was made with lard. And, you know, you don't cook with lard these days. And so he's, he just has all this lard congealing in his stomach and he needs to take a big old dump because he can't. Gross. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, but <laughs> just, he, it, I, I just think that it's such a great detail that I never even thought of. No, I was about to, I was about to ask you what, how about what's your favorite scene? Yeah, I I completely agree with that scene. I'm going to try to pull out a different one because it's so funny. Speaking of watershed moments, I literally remember where I was. I, I had been reading that scene 
and I got up to go get myself a water or something and I, I literally, that scene is so vividly burned into my mind that I remember where I was when I read that scene. And, and what, why is that? Because it was so, like you were saying, it was so visceral and it yeah. was so enjoyable and it was like Stephen King was remembering how things were when he was growing up and he was putting that joy in his writing. And that's something that to me just, again, sets him apart from so many writers. His writing is so good because even at 1,080 pages, I want more of this. There are so many books that I've read where I'm like, stop writing. Right. <laughs> like, like this is enough. You need to stop. But at, literally, at he is so good that at 1,080 pages, I'm like, give me more of this story. <laughs> and right. And another one of my, uh, you know, to piggyback off of that, I sound like I'm in a Zoom meeting. Yes. Can I piggyback <laughs> off? Uh, directly after that scene when Jake goes back for the first time, there's about a hundred page stretch of this book where Al explains the rules. Mm -hmm. it, again, it's it's a large portion. It's a tenth of this novel, which is just a, an afternoon between Jake and Al of him just explaining how the past works and of his reasoning of why saving Kennedy would lead to all these great things. And this hundred page page section is something that would never make a movie or a TV show because yeah. it's just two characters in a room right. just just you know talking things through yeah. and it is very it's very uncinematic but that that doesn't mean it's not riveting to read on the page yeah. because it is just so fun to learn about time travel. Right. And and this is something that I really appreciate about the book is that even though Al is in maybe the first third of the book, maybe not even the first third. Al and Jake's relationship is built in that third of the novel and it carries through and Jake keeps hearing Al's advice later in the novel when obviously Al is already dead. He keeps honoring his memory by listening to the constraints that Al put on him because he realizes that Al's been experimenting for 30 years. Mm -hmm. So I'm not, I'm gonna try to not talk about the show but in the show that's something that they really throw away and you really feel the lack of because it's so rich mm -hmm. and jake learning from al's experiments is such a big part of his experience right and so anyway i i just wanted to quickly go over my favorite part of the novel so when jake shows up to jody mm. again like danny said that could be a novel yeah. That entire section when Jake arrives and he gets a job at first as a substitute teacher and then the person that he's subbing for ends up retiring so they hire him on as a full-time English teacher. That part is incredible. He becomes an even better teacher than he was in 2011. It's funny also how many teachers Stephen King writes about. Mm. Uh, and in fact, he was a teacher before he became an, a full-time author. Yeah, but, and you can tell he has so much respect for educators right. and realizing how important they are for kids yes. uh, in their teen years, how formative teachers are. Exactly, and that portion of the book really took me back to when I was a summer camp counselor and I was able to be a mentor for people from middle school to high school. And I enjoyed that time so much because I loved watching those students grow and become more confident in themselves. Right. And like that was my mission each summer was like try to get these kids to understand that like it's not just a cliche when you say it doesn't matter what people think of you. And that's just something that I loved watching Jake Epp 
prepping to do for his students. And I want to point out a specific example that just makes me want to cry every time I think about it. Jake is able to get this football player named Mike Kozlaw to play George in a production of Of Mice and Men. And you know, there's this one scene where Mike is really concerned that he can't really portray this character well, and he doesn't think he's a good actor. And Jake gives him this whole pep talk about how incredible he is and what a great kid he is and all these things. And again, it's it's a small detail. And it's something that the show d decided was not important enough to keep in there. Really, you don't even see Jake teach at all yeah. in, when he goes to Jody, And it's just a great character building piece. So that's really, that's where I really enjoyed because it just made me think that Stephen King understands the importance of role models when you're in that adolescent state. And I think the reason that section of the book is so great is twofold. One, because it's such a relaxing departure from the very stressful opening third when you're yeah. when you're learning about his mission and when he finally goes back and when he has that test run with the Dunnings, oh, which goes which wrong the first time. And probably then, the scariest part right. of the whole book. But he finally finds his place in Jody and he has about four years before mm -hmm. the assassination attempt. And he really just kind of falls in love both with Sadie, but also this town. Mm -hmm. And the mission kind of goes to the wayside because it can. Mm -hmm. And you as a reader, you kind of forget. You get mystified and raptured by this little story about this small town teacher who is, yes, a man out of time, but you forget that. Like, he could be any teacher. You right. Reading this, you're reminded of your favorite teacher's Oh, in yeah. high school yeah and of, of all teachers it could be elementary school teachers or professors in college mm -hmm. you know grad I ha I've had plenty of grad students who taught me in college as well who I still mm -hmm. remember and keep in touch with and it's it's just such a relatable important heartwarming part of the story but so that's the first reason but the second reason is so you completely forget about Jake's whole mission mm -hmm. right he even has the moment where he he's like you know what Fuck the mission. Honestly, like, I'm just going to live my life right. right here, and I'm just going to teach. And, and, he, I, and like, he decides to stay no matter what. He, he, right. he decides never yeah, to go he's back. Like, yeah, I'm never going back. To which is, and as a reader, you're like, yeah, I can see why you're staying. Like, you're in right. love with this town. The people love you. There's a mutual mm -hmm. appreciation going on. Yeah, you really, if you love if you love this time period, then stay, right. uh, you know, more power to you. But then you get thrown back into it because you realize, oh crap, I'm only 600 pages in. <laughs> and you look, and this is a part where the, the sheer weight of the book you're reading actually adds to the experience because you're in the middle, everything's going fine, but you know that shit is going to hit the fan. Right. You're holding this heavy book and everything is going great for the characters. And if you know anything about story structure, you know that there's going to be a third act coming, that mm -hmm. there's going to be, Jake is eventually going to run into the date, 11 63 Yeah. And so that's why it's still so thrilling, even though you're just reading about this teacher's everyday life, mm -hmm. you know, very mundane, you know that something else is coming. And right. he's he's this man who has found 
his favorite time period who is out of time. He mm-hmm. doesn't he doesn't belong there at the end of the day. No matter how how much he digs his heels in and becomes a part of that town, the past will dig him back up. Right. He, he his credentials get brought mm-hmm. into question, but they love him so much that they decide to right, keep him. Right. They look him. the other way and there's this one moment where CD becomes suspicious when he starts singing a Rolling Stones song that hasn't come out yet. Right. And she's like, "Why are you singing about whores?" The Rolling <laughs> the Rolling Stones in general. And then the finale comes and the amount of or I said the second to last act where he goes to yeah. stop Oswald is the most tense oh is the gosh. tense it's not a finale because there's a whole, you know, 200 pages after he stops right. the assassination, but it is so tense, and the past is literally throwing buses and cars at Jake right. and Sadie. Right. Yeah, they George get into, like, multiple car accidents. Yeah, it's... And that catharsis that comes from from stopping Oswald, and of him, of Oswald being kind of vaporized by a wave of bullets once, you know, it's he stops him and the Secret Service know where Oswald is mm-hmm. because of Jake. They just, like, absolutely obliterate him. It's rich thematically and very satisfying, but also I think my favorite line in the whole book is after Sadie dies, because you as a reader, mm-hmm. I, think, I think Stephen King is smart enough to know that the reader is is smart enough to know that Sadie's probably going to die. Right. Because of everything yeah. of everything he's built up, of kind of the past being obdurate, pushing back, of things balancing out. Right. If, yeah, it's a huge motif. Yeah. Is, yeah, balance and the law of cause and effect. Right. So he knows if, if JFK survives, someone else has to die. But it can't be Oswald because he already died in real life. So right. it has to be Sadie. Right, so his death is null already. Yeah, right. And my, my favorite line of the book is when Jake is looking over Sadie as she's dying or has already died. I can't remember. And he says, like, I'm not a crying man, but I felt like crying for Sadie. But I still didn't because deep down inside, I knew. Yeah. And of the main character admitting to the audience that, like, hey, we're both smart enough here to know that this was going to happen. We knew the whole time. Well, and actually, the book opens with a statement about how he's not a crying man. Right. And how, in fact, that also ties in a little bit with Harry Dunning's story, because that moves Jake to tears. But then, you know, when Sadie dies, it's like he knew the whole time. Right. It, it would it have couldn't been... have caught him off guard because he knew the past was obdurate and was going to throw this in front of him because saving JFK was such a watershed moment. Like, yeah. Al was right. Yeah. It would have been unbelievable to have Jake break down because yeah. Jake is such a smart character. Right. And, you know, King respects you enough to know that, yeah, like, of course this is going to happen Jake wouldn't break down. That would have been cheesy and unearned. Yeah. And it's, it's, in fact, even more sad and more powerful that Ugh. that Sadie dies and Jake kind of knows. But again, Jake tries, he tries everything, everything he can to stop Sadie from coming with him. Right. But it's ultimately Sadie's decision. So Sadie's death is not on Jake, but right. it still is, is equally sad. Well, and it makes it even sadder when he gets back to 2011 and it's this post-apocalyptic world where reality has sort of been torn apart 
and he decides to go back and reset it and then he tries so hard not to look Sadie up because at that point when he goes back everything has reset so she doesn't die so he goes back to 2011 and he's like I know I can look her up yeah and he eventually does and when he goes back and dances with her because that's a whole other motif about how dances life quote unquote, that's used in a bunch of places in the novel as well. And he has this final dance with her and she asks like, do I know you? That whole thing. Like that part had me sobbing. Sobbing, Like guys. I, guys, <laughs> listen, when yeah, I was I, reading that, I that, gotta... that was sad because like that was a choice for him to walk away from her, but have her live her life separately. And we can get into the characterization of Sadie because personally, that was my least favorite element in the novel actually was her, uh, which again, we can talk about separately. But I read that her ending when she's 80 and she's had this incredible life as an individual, she never got married. She was able to devote her life to civil service, all these things. That was actually Stephen King's son's idea. Yeah, who goes by the pen name Joe Hill. Right. So I thought that was even sadder because that was a choice that Jake made to better Sadie's life rather than to have this life of his own. Mm -hmm. So like that to me, like that got me. Sadie's death didn't really get me because like you said, like I knew it was coming. But then when he decided to reset everything and he went back and they had that old dance at the end, like, oh God, it got me. It is such a noble sacrifice to... Jake could have, yeah. because Jake essentially just could go back in time and just be with Sadie again. Right. But he knows that the past is going to push back, even if he doesn't try to stop the JFK assassination. He knows that it's just not going to end well for one of them. Right. Or if they had kids together, that would be a huge yeah change. And then again, like you said, like one of them might die, or, like, and. So even to, for him to go back and say like, oh, Sadie, we can be together, but we can't have kids. That would be taking something away from her because she might've wanted that. So like you're saying, it's so noble because he knows that she'll become a better person without him yeah. to take himself out of the equation. Yeah, even though he has spent about four years like intensely loving right. another person <sighs> yeah. to go back to give them the gift of a good life and then for that other person to not even really know them at the end of the day since timelines have been reset is just so sad but it will bittersweet is the better right. word because it's it's deeply upsetting for Jake but also he he can be happy knowing that Sadie's happy right and to be honest that for me saved the only part of the novel that kind of got under my skin because Sadie is not a very interesting character to me. The way that her character was developed, it was kind of that perfect, flawless, young, skinny woman who, you know, can't do anything wrong. And like, of course, Jake would fall in love with her. And she kept making all of these decisions to like support Jake and like there was no, I didn't really think that there was a lot of interesting character development for her, but I almost felt like because she became this dynamic woman in the future without Jake, it went further to develop her character that she was more without a man. Does that make sense? Like she kind oh. of kept making 
decisions when she was with Jake to fulfill her idea of what, you know, a woman should be for a man during that time period. Mm Mm-hmm. So when he decided to take himself out of the equation and she ended up being this inspirational human being later, I felt like that was, that said more about her. Like she became this person on her own who she might not have been able to be if Jake had, had been in her life. Do you know, you know what I Yeah, no, I see. Sense? No, it totally makes sense. And I didn't even think about that at all. That does add to her character. But I, I don't think she was necessarily underwritten as I was reading it i i think stephen king put a lot of interesting quirks on her of being like super clumsy and tall i know being tall isn't a personality trait but i i felt i felt like she's a little more defined than what you're saying i don't think that she had a lot of agency though and i i i think that there were a few times where she was a little bit of a a damsel in distress now Now, this could be a commentary from King kind of being like women in this time period were totally controlled by men. And yeah, and yeah. Sadie's ex, Johnny Clayton, who right. plays a big part. Who in, didn't even mention yeah, in the summary. Right. He plays a big part in the middle portion of the story as well when uh, he comes back to try to claim Sadie. And Sadie, you know, is claiming that like he has this power over her and that like her whole family wants her to be with him. Because they're not divorced yet. Yeah. So, yeah. And yeah, it's kind of unclear if Stephen's kind of making this statement about how men control women during this time period. But maybe it's I love the book so much that I'm trying I'm trying to hype up Sadie's character more than what's on the page. I wouldn't say I wasn't jazzed by her own dialogue. Like I wouldn't say she's a unique yeah. type of dialect or anything like that. Like she's from Georgia, she has that southern accent. But but other than that, I mean, she she's not overdefined. Jake is definitely like we know Jake in right. and out. And that's why I say that I was a little let down by her character because. Compared to the other characters, there's a noticeable difference in her character development. Yeah. And I I just don't have enough evidence in the text to make a judgment about whether or not Stephen King was trying to say something with her lack of agency. Yeah. Like, I remember in college, my advisor, or Dr. Flory, he would always say, like, you can write a paper about anything as long as you have hard evidence from the text that backs up your argument. And... Again, I just, I don't have the evidence that he was trying to say something with her lack of agency. Oh, you're bringing so. up our podcast guest, Dr. Flory, who you heard in our Dune episode. That's right. <laughs> yeah, you guys have met him. Um, but we, We're recording this before we recorded Dune. Don't tell anybody. So I just remember the feeling of being let down every time she was in the novel. And I, I just didn't, Jake is such a wealth of character development that I almost was like, you know, they just seem like they're together because she's the only pretty one at the school of of the same age. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like there just wasn't enough character development for me to say like, they are a perfect couple. So I, I just personally, as like, as a straight woman, like I just kind of felt a little let down by her character development. I felt like she could have been more interesting, but you know, at the same time, I was devastated at the end when they had their final dance and she was 80 and he was, you know, 36 or whatever. I was like, "Ah." so there was enough there to make, to let them have a very compelling love story. I was just disappointed by the character. But um, yeah, I mean, what else? Um, Well, I think the beauty of the book is that 
so he stops the assassination from happening but then again you're reading the book and you're like gosh darn we have 200 pages more to go right and then what happens is kind of it seems like an epilogue at first but then it turns into a full-on just ending like this is the real ending right of him going into the future and realizing that since he changed the past so significantly the reality kind of broke as right. her, uh, and as the yellow the, the new yellow card man explains to him mm-hmm. there's just too many strings that you've added now with this big monumental change it's not that I, and this is important that what i'm about to say listeners the book says that just because jfk survived that doesn't mean that the past uh, that the future is all messed up it's right. that the past changed so the future changed so drastically that the world broke now the show says something differently which is really right. messed up which we'll get to yes. and i kind of want to talk about my overall takeaway from the novel as well yes please so al's understanding of the watershed moment was that If JFK had not been assassinated, everything radiating out of that would have been better. Now, what Jake comes to believe is that every decision is more like a roll of the dice, Mm -hmm. where everybody has agency, everybody has the responsibility to make a choice, basically at every turn of life. And everything is randomized. And... What I think is so beautiful in that message kind of goes back to the way that I try to live my life is I have a decision in every moment to make the world a better place or even just make my environment a better place, like picking up a piece of trash or taking out the garbage for someone or, you know, cleaning a sink. I think those little tiny decisions are a huge deal. And Mm -hmm. they radiate outward. And if you make someone else's day a little bit better, they might be inspired to make someone else's day a little bit better. So like those individual choices from moment to moment are what really make a big impact on the fate of the universe. Rather than there being these massive moments that Mm -hmm. completely change. And like while I agree that the assassination of President Kennedy was a huge moment in history. I just think it's people's reactions to those massive moments that make a bigger change. So that's what I really took away from this novel. Right, yeah. I, I definitely I definitely agree with that and feel the same way. And it's kind of a more of thinking forward instead of mm-hmm. looking in, yes, into the past. exactly. Because there are so many, and this is a big reason why, why the Truman Show is my favorite movie because both both Jake Epping and and then the character of uh, Truman Burbank, mm-hmm. they is his last name Burbank because yeah. a lot of television shows are shot in Burbank. I'm I'm not sure if that's the reason, but that his last name totally is Burbank. Just hit me. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, sorry, I interrupted. I no, always interrupt. That's all right. They are so focused with the past and being like, this happened so we can't do this mm-hmm. with with Jake Epping he's trying to stop this big event from from happening with Truman he can't escape because of a boating accident when he was young and so he's afraid of right. the water but really their perspectives are wrong because they're looking in the wrong direction mm-hmm. whereas Truman it's as simple as him just 
just getting on a boat and going like a mile down the road and he's gone. Like it's right. really not that big of a deal. Whereas Jake and I guess to an extent Al, yes, there's this huge tragedy that has happened, but you can't always be looking in the past. You can't live with this regret, even in this case where they can literally travel to the past. Right. Dwelling in there, staying in the in the past with these horrible events will not solve anything. What's what matters is your reactions and how mm-hmm. you you carry yourself in the future and and the goodness in your heart that you transfer to other people with your actions going forward. Now, I think there's also an element of not being selfish, which we've talked about. Mm-hmm. You know, selfish with your actions, with Jake ultimately choosing to be selfless and mm-hmm. giving Sadie life. You know, he has this huge opportunity with going back in time, and he and he takes it and revels in it. But as he comes to understand, like this big thing, it, it's not good for everyone. What I'm doing, it like what's best is me leaving this alone and mm-hmm. trying to make a difference in the future. So it's like it's. You know, it, same as with the Truman Show, it's selfish for the God character played by Ed Harris to keep Truman in this bubble. I'm kind of going on a big tangent here. No, connecting I have something these to also piggyback fan. off this, so keep talking. But it's selfish for, even though Kristoff is creating entertainment for millions by trapping Truman in this prison, so to speak, just the act of trapping one person is evil enough for you know to warrant him stopping it Mm -hmm. like like truman deserved the right to Mm -hmm. leave now this is kind of a stretch but to go back in the past and make decisions because of his death is inherently wrong and destructive and not going to work as you're saying because what stephen king is saying is like what's important is what you do in the future following that like Totally. Okay, so it's so interesting for me to listen to you talk about The Truman Show, because obviously I knew that was your favorite movie probably since our first date. Mm-hmm. Probably since when we started texting each other on Tinder. Yeah. Tinder! <laughs> it's interesting for me to hear you talk about it in that way, though, because before I saw Call Me By Your Name, Midnight in Paris was my favorite movie. Now, Woody Allen is a whole separate discussion, but it was my favorite movie, because when I saw it in 2012, I was in high school and throughout, I think pretty much through like freshman to senior year, I was so obsessed with that idea that I was born during the wrong time period. I loved the 60s. I felt like the music and the activism and the feminism, like I belonged in that time period. And those ideas were keeping me from being fully present as like a high school student, you know? I mean, it's it's no secret that I didn't have a lot of friends and I was like kind of a loner. I didn't have like oh, one friend. But but I'm being serious. Like I, I do think that it prevented me from being fully present in that time. And that really changed for me when I saw Midnight in Paris. And there's a very self-conscious scene where Gil, the main character played by Owen Wilson, is back in time twice. So he's gone to the 20s and then he went back to the 1890s, La Belle Epoque, with his girlfriend from the 20s. (laughs) And they're actually talking about, it's almost like Inception, they're actually talking about going back again to the Renaissance because all the people in these time periods believe that the greatest time period before them was the best 
time to live the best era and he realizes like that's not a real choice for me like i have to go back and face the fact that my engagement is falling apart and i hate my life and what i really want to do is live in paris and be a writer so he tells maria cotillard the idea of you going back to the renaissance isn't a decision because once you get there, you're just gonna think that the time period before Before that, that. and then you're gonna go back to that time and then you're gonna be uncomfortable. And the quote is, it's going to be unsatisfying because life is a little unsatisfying. Yeah. And that to me, when I heard that, I was sitting in the theater with my friend Alice, we were in Santa Monica, I remember, and I was just like, what? (laughs) Like. If I was able to travel back to 1969, I would be unsatisfied. <laughs> After a while, like that blew my mind. Yeah. And it literally, it was one of those moments where I was like, oh, the decision to make my life great is a moment to moment decision. Mm-hmm. And the decision to be present is not something that you grow into or like you you get to a certain point in life and then suddenly like, oh, now I feel present and now I understand. You know, like like he says in the in Midnight in Paris, life is a little unsatisfying, but that's why you have to keep pushing yourself to become the person that doesn't feel unsatisfied. It's using that impossibility of time travel to shine a light on how you should live your life day to day. Making sure that you're happy and you're fulfilled by making those moment to moment decisions. Yeah, it's like it's useless to look back in time in regret. Like I wish I could go back in time to sixth grade where on the football field, I accidentally called Coach Day mom. I called him mom and everyone <laughs> laughed at me. But then... We've all done that. But then one of my best friends, Ryan Kelly, who I had met at the time, he said, oh, I've done that before. Yeah, And right. from that, and then that, that embarrassing thing, which my uh, football mates made fun of me for a good year, it, tur- it turned into this, you know, it was the start of this friendship between one of my greatest friends. And, and as much as I want to change that, when I truly look back at the ripple effects, it's like, oh, it actually led to something great. And it's like, why? Like, what's the use in me? Like, it's embarrassing and it happened, but what's the use in me dwelling on it? Right. And, and you can look to the past for direction. <laughs> yeah. But as long as you're not introducing the fear and not saying like, oh, I'm not going to do that because last time, you know, I got embarrassed or it was better in the past past something like that you know of course you can learn from history and of course we should learn from the past and hopefully the president after the president we have now is never assassinated but we can't move forward in fear and say like oh then we're never gonna have a president again Mm -hmm. you know that would be silly just last week i accidentally cut an old man in line at the truck stop in culver city and now what i should have done was asked him hey are you in line but i was in a rush and i didn't and it was a rude of me to do that but now i've instead of looking back at that moment and saying like hey a whole crowd of people hate hate you because you cut an old man instead i look back at that and learn hey how about you just ask people if they're in line and it's not like you're never going to get in line for a food truck exactly (laughs) you're just going to act in a better way yes (laughs) learn learn from the past do not dwell in your mistakes yeah yeah definitely yeah and i think like that's what this book is saying and you know going back to how this 
is not a typical Stephen King novel. If you're looking for a thriller, there are thrilling parts of this, especially, okay, we didn't talk in detail about Harry Dunning's life, but what a tragedy. That was the first time I cried in the book. I was think... Harry Dunning's reading of his story, his family's story. But like we said, I think where the psychological, I'm not even gonna call it thriller, but the psychological torment of just sort of saying the universe is completely random. And it was Lee Harvey Oswald's choice to make a very cowardice decision to make a name for himself by killing someone. But it was a collection of random events that allowed him to pull the trigger. And again, I just feel like there's nothing you can do about those random events except for take control of your own life and say like, I'm going to try to make these random events the best that they can be. And hopefully, you know, those things will rub off on other people. Right. I So I, I guess sort of to like tie in what I started <laughs> talking about in the beginning of this sentence is that it's really hard for humans to just say life is random. Yeah. Because it's scary. But again, like we've talked about, like the point is it doesn't have to be scary. That's just how life works. Like, and, and again, this is coming from like, I personally, like I'm an atheist, so I don't believe that there's any plan for the universe like I think it's more beautiful and it gives people more agency that there's nothing pulling you in any direction you are the sole arbiter of your actions right. and you have to make decisions that's that's why I love the Truman show to bring that up again too because at the end of the day the only person holding Truman back in that dome that he was imprisoned in was Truman himself he could have left at any time mm -hmm. but it took him till like age 35 for him to act finally realize it's me who's holding mm -hmm. me back. I don't know if that's grammatically correct, but <laughs> but I'm holding myself back. Right. And I just need to, go, I can't stop dwelling in the past. I can't stop living with my fear of, in, in this case, it was the water, but I just, right. you got to go forward and look forward. And yeah. and then as soon as he did that, bam, he, he was free. Right. Both, both metaphorically and literally. Oh boy, what a book. So I think we've decided this is a two-part episode. Yeah, this is definitely a two-part. We've been recording <laughs> we for- Touch the show. Yeah, which, okay, <laughs> listeners, next episode, gonna be a bloodbath. Oh my gosh. We are gonna tear the show apart. It's not even, it, it might not even be fun to listen to because we're gonna just become these angry beasts who just rip it apart like a piece of meat. We hate it. We not really a tasty piece it. of meat. And I'll just go on record saying that I hated it before Danny, but <laughs> to be fair, Danny had to put a kibosh on my. <laughs> oh, my, what now? my reactions like you had to like stop you had to like hold me back from reacting to the show <laughs> what was that word kibosh bless you k-i-b-o-s-h <laughs> i've never it heard that to before. like to like put a stop to something oh cool you had to stop me from reacting to the television show in a very upset way so i have a <laughs> i have a i have a lot of pent-up energy you should see my notes my handwriting when I was taking notes, it's like I'm just slashing at the page. I was so angry at well, every single decision. For that the, the show for made. the listeners, it sounds like I'm this controlling boyfriend who's saying, "Don't react." I, let me give some context around episode two, and I'm not being hyperbolic about every other second. Here, I, next to me, I hear ah, 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 and again, you might say every second. Yes, it was. 
It was, I could not focus. But also, so. the people who know me and the people who've come to know me through the podcast, I feel like I'm very fair toward remakes that don't follow the books verbatim mm-hmm. or beat for beat. For example, I, a lot of people hate The Shining because it changes pretty much every element about The Shining. Stephen King himself hates The Shining. Yeah. I love The Shining. I feel like I'm very fair toward remakes that either recreate a lot of stuff in the on the surface to say something different or to say something similar to what the text says in an interesting way. I am so for that. But listen, when you take what has become my favorite book that basically describes my philosophy of life and you put it in the toilet and take a baseball bat and smash the toilet, why do we always go to the bathroom? I don't know. We're four years old. <laughs> and smash the toilet to the point where the porcelain is grit and sand. Like, you don't even have large pieces. It's just all... It's gone. It's... I'm going to take offense, and I'm going to react with some scoffs and eye rolls mm-hmm. and leaving the room for a minute <laughs> because I can't even... And, like, drinking and making... I, I, I just... It's uh, upsetting. It, it's an adaptation that disrespects its it disrespects. source material. Well, let's leave it at that. Let's leave it for the next episode. Well, thank you for listening. I mean, this was long enough for a single episode, so thank you for listening. We'll see you next week for part two of our review of 11.22.63, the show. 11.22.63, rather than the book, which is 11 slash 22 slash 63. I wish that were the only change it had made. (laughs) (laughs) If only. All right, thanks for listening. See ya on the next one.